Revenge of the Aces Kids has been rated P for podcast. How long did you say your roadside assistance was going to be? Kind of busy here, Ian. Yes, I know, I know. Ninjas attacking led by forces of a half-blind Russian mercenary who suddenly killed during the siege in Afghanistan last year. I'm quite capable of following the plot as it develops. It's just... Justin, watch out for that! Oh, this is... This is out... Wah! This is... This is... Ah! Ooh, that's gonna leave a mark. Oh, to hell with this. Ian, duck down behind the wheel, would you? No, you, you don't! Tally ho That's got the buggers on the run. Not so clever now, are we? I knew we should have gone with a good old grenade clear out from the beginning. I don't really know what your objection was. I mean... We hesitated, and Justin is worm food. Oh, don't worry about that. I'm sure he'll be fine by next week. Oh, crap. Leo, we have a problem. What's that noise? I was trying not to make a fuss, but... Is that what I think it is? If you think it's an explosive neck collar, then yes, it is exactly what you think it is. I take it that it will explode if you get too far from the van. That... And also, if, by some strange explosive accident, the Russian's only remaining son should have some kind of cardiac incident. Oh, and he was leading the assault, wasn't he? I think he might have been, yes. And I just blew him up with a grenade. Yes. Okay, so how long till that thing goes off? I think it's beeping because the boy's heartbeat has fallen to some kind of irregular rhythm or something. Uh... You probably didn't blow him up, you know, quite to hell. Ah, so if if he dies... I die. And the giraffe? Probably dies as well as it's in the back of the van. And if the giraffe dies, then the Russian will be quite annoyed? Which means you're probably next. Oh, Ian, how do we get ourselves into these things? Well, it all started after last weekend when we decided to have a massive Luke Besson marathon. Yes, hello and welcome to Revenge of the 80s, kids, where we've decided to go a little bit action-y, a little bit sci-fi and a little bit continental. So we're kind of mashing up several of our, our past shows and concept uh, because today we're going to be looking into the work uh, of one Luke Besson. And joining me just this week is, is Ian. I say just, I mean as in terms of numbers of bodies, not obviously that Ian is, is any less 
capable of talking about Luke Besson than anyone else. In fact, I would imagine probably a bit more capable than some people. How do you feel about talking about Luke Besson for the next hour or so, Ian? Um, sorry, I was just eating a croissant. I love it when we have the French episodes. Uh, yes, I'm looking forward to this immensely, Leo. Um, yes. Now, one of the things that we should probably uh, heads up uh, in do- approaching the career of Luke Besson, this is a show that I pretty much wanted to do or wanted to slot in somewhere uh, from the beginning of the podcast. Uh, he's one of my favourite figures in film, and I have to say it like that, because usually, you know, when we did our Swayze retrospective, Swayze was definitely an actor. That's mm. what he did. It wasn't that difficult to see. And most people think of Luke Besson probably as a director. I mean, I think people have this kind of woolly concept. But if someone is a director, if they have directed a film, they think of them as a director. After that, there's producer and screenwriter. And I think to be a screenwriter, you have to pretty much sink, you know, you have to sink, stick to doing that one job pretty consistently. So you've got people like Damon Lindelof. He's a screenwriter. He writes, uh, Orkai and Kurtzman. They also do production. But yes, people can handle on to director and screenwriter. When people are famous producers, for example, Joel Silver uh, or, or Jerry Bruckheimer, people aren't really sure what producers do, are they, really? Oh, I, they, I get they do the neb- nebulous office things involving <laughs> budgets and getting actors involved and production stuffy stuff. It's very interesting because at the beginning of um, Hollywood, the producer was the most important person in the film. I mean, t- to this day, I think that's still the way it works. Uh, the producer is, he's the one who produces the film. The director, yes, he tells the actors where to stand and how to say what to say. And he works with the cinematographer to get the shot just right. And so he's coordinating everything that we see and hear, but there's a lot more to making a film than just the film. And the producer is involved with all of the rest of it, like everything. For example, a director and a screenwriter and a producer might work quite closely together, or the producer might work with the screenwriter, or the screenwriter may have bought the script and therefore just delivers it to the director. There are three roles, I think, have a sort of interchangeable kind of quality that, you know, although so-and-so is the director and -and so-and-so is the producer and -and so-and-so is the screenwriter, if it's a, a known team... Such as I mentioned, you know, you have J.J. Abrams, Orkai Kurtzman, Lindelof. They all, for example, shouldered the blame for Star Trek Into Darkness equally, I think, because although the credits demanded that they all have these distinct roles, and I think that people kind of, the actors appreciate having a director... They all kind of get together and have meetings and decide, you know, on a, as a group. Well, I think gonna... by its nature, film and television are, you know, it's it's creative melting pot, the creative collaboration process. Yes. If you want to have your true and altered artistic vision of something, go write a book. To be bluntly honest with you. Or, uh, or, or alternatively, you could be Luke Besson. Because the reason we're going into all this depth is because he is not a director, he is not a screenwriter, he is not a producer, he is all of these. He wears many hats, all of them berets. Oh no, sorry, stop with the French jokes. I can't promise the absence of French jokes, I must be clear on that. Yeah, so I mean, you know, but this is the thing, I mean, we have to put that out right away. And as such, I think it's, it's fair to say that there are few figures in 
film, cinema as a whole entity who have been quite so insanely prolific as Mr. Bessel. I would say that's a fair summation, maybe. Well, looking at the list of things that we're likely to at least cover in some part or other, yes, prolific would be the word. Yep. So, um, and the problem is that we, we, we could probably, if we were going to go into a detail into Luke Besson's career, then we would be here for a lot longer than we are usually. And we're usually here for a very long time. So it would be a uh, trilogy of episodes, I think. Yeah. So I think what we're going to basically say, we're going to hit some of the high points. We're going to talk about well, Luke Besson just sort of as, as we encountered. Looking, him. looking over the list, he seems to be a producer the most. Then a screenwriter, then a director in terms of the volume of his work. Although, yes, well, I, I think the reason for that is because as a producer, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, uh, people get very sniffy when they consider an individual product of his production company, Europa. They kind of, you know, you take Taken and people got very, you know, one of the things about it is that uh, the French sensibility does not take into account an English-speaking uh, notion of political correctness. So, of course, in Taken, uh, Paris is full of filthy French coppers and uh, dirty, dirty Arabs who are selling young Western women for slaves. And it's all—it's the kind of thing where it's like, really? Really, are we going there? And it's like the French are like, yeah, because that's what it's like. So get over it. And, in you know... He's taking advantage in a way of the fact that in Europe, people will do that and they won't question it. Whereas if you tried to do the same thing in Hollywood, you'd have someone come in going, well, we're worried about how this is going to play with our Turkish demographic. Uh, we're not sure that they really want to see a film in which Liam Neeson blows them up because then we need more positive Turkish. Maybe if we give Liam Neeson a, 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 a Turkish sidekick who's a, and he just avoids all of that crap by going, well, no, I'm just going to make this film and I, I'm the producer. And if I need to be, I could be the screenwriter and the director. So get out of my face. Um, well, it's, it's, it's a French sensibility of being aloof, being contrary, yeah. not conformist. I think that, yes, so I think that the thing about it is that his objective is, look, we're going around, I mean, indeed, Taken 2, after annoying all these various people, he does try and work with them. It's set in Istanbul. And the reason for that is because he's using local crews, he's getting jobs for people in the area, and so Europa Corp is more than just a producer of schlocky action movies. It is also a vehicle by which Europe has a stronger, more talented pool of people to make movies, which is a good thing. I find the story of Luke Besson to be very strange indeed. For uh, As 80s kids, uh, we, of course, uh, had no, no real opportunity to be, even be aware of Luke Besson until mm, 1985, maybe. Nine, mm, yeah, the mid-80s, you could have known there was this French director who was directing stuff. But the thing about it is, he started off exactly the same way as all the other people, you know, that you get who were making foreign art house movies at the time. I mean, he must have had this agenda from the beginning, surely. I mean, you know, you don't just suddenly become this incredibly prolific producer of schlock European action without thinking, yes, that's kind of where, I'm, where I'd like to be. I mean, he made a few like sort of films. I mean, Le Dernier Combat is post-apocalyptic. I know that much. I've never actually seen it. 
based on his short from 1981, Lavant Dernier, which is the same thing. And then you've got Subway, which I believe is generally agreed to be a sort of triumph of, of substance, style over substance. It's not to it, but it's this kind of flashy kind of French sort of action-ish. He hasn't really gone there yet. I think he was kind of still finding his way. Well, he has a very, a very good Rotten Tomato score, 86%. Yes. Yes, um, I mean, I'd have to see it to know, but it's not really, uh, I mean, and then, then you have the big blue, which people generally, uh, they kind, I mean, it's, again, Rotten Tomatoes, I mean, not that Rotten Tomatoes is the arbiter of all things, but 63% there reflects the fact that it's a bit of a noodle. He's quite, I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff. He has this, it's weird now that I come to think about it, but he likes scuba diving and undersea stuff. But not the excesses, not, not the excesses of James Cameron though. Well, this is the thing. It's like, okay, so he hasn't allowed it to become an obsession to that same degree. His obsession is in turning out uh, European schlock. But certainly, I mean, you've got the the big blue, and then Atlantis is a documentary, I believe, which is another thing, underwater. And every so often you see peppered in underwater or, you know, exploration that, that he's he's got this uh you know obsession with that so well uh, right about what you know i mean we're gonna have to use the a word i'm afraid which is auteur and it's probably more to do with the french european auteurness of it it isn't quite such a hollywood machine that you have the industry there so people pushing their individual projects you know with their singular shaped vision is is a much more accepted way of doing things over over in that strange land uh, Yes. Um, well, I mean, and then, I mean, so he's making these films. And to be fair, if you take Ladonia Combat, Subway and The Big Blue together, he looks like a French director. Like he, he, he's do he's putting his, his finger in a lot of pies. He's making some French stuff. You know, one of his film titles starts with Le. And in fact, uh, you know, The Big Blue is, is just the English title. You know, it, it's, it's similarly, it's all very French and people are very comfortable at this stage with the Luke Besselas. He's, he's one of a shoal of, of French and indeed European directors just making French and European stuff. I mean, I think that round about this time there was also La Han which is the thing about um, French youths and uh, disenfranchised French youths on, on estates in, in France and stuff. It, it was all part of that that movement of the people were going for the gritty. They were still trying to mine out. I think there was a sort of um, cultural ignorant attitude that European directors were all sophisticated and arty and philosophical and and that that you know they were naturally going to have their mind on higher things than than the kind of people who would make you know commando and uh, and and you know the running man and stuff like that and and you know rambo they thought that the the french people would naturally so in 1919 he, he comes out with nikita Still, he's getting away with it because, of course, Nikita is famous for being a film in which a little French woman kicks some serious ass. People were still trying to pin on him the Frenchness of the the European director. They were going, yes, this is what he is. He's a French director. Well, it's, 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 it is, it's, it is European because it has a very muted European ending to it. Mm. Yes, I think that, and well, again, and I think that this is, you know, he's trying to do it, sort of, trying to get through. I mean, this is one of the things that is, will emerge as we go through the story of Luke Besson. He's a bit of a hustler. He, he wants to get it done. And if he has to play up to an image to get it done, 
so be it. Because the next thing he does then, apart from his uh, another underwater documentary, and something I do not know about, which he only produced, called Cold Moon, which I'm imagining is a documentary about the moon. Let's have a look. French uh, drama. Uh, oh, it's a French drama. There we go, which he produced. Based on a short go. story. Oh, there we go. So, there we, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that uh, there's going to be a lot of that. Things that he produced because he felt that he could get someone some money. This is the point. This is, you know, you can see underneath. At this point, he's... In 1991, he can help make a small French drama, and he gets straight in there, and, you know, he's getting his, his hands dirty with that well, kind of thing. To, to be envious for a moment, it's quite nice just to have your fingers in a lot of pies, and not always to have to do the dirty work of writing or shooting the damn thing. Just because... Directors and act- directors, screenwriters, producers—they all mingle together. They're mostly all friends with each other, and so I, I imagine they strike up these creative conversations. And, and he's willing to throw in his effort and help people out. And say, yes, I shall produce this movie for you. Uh, you go do your thing, and you know it, it must be quite nice just to be able to just be go around being goddamn creative in some fashion all the time in lots of different ways. Yes. Then you have uh, uh, a little bit of a break in which I think he's really trying to get stuff together to go and do Leon, also known as The Professional, or if you're not into that whole brevity thing, known as Leon The Professional, uh, in 1994, which is his follow-up to Nikita. And I think Leon is a movie people have trouble with generally speaking not in a bad way just it's a bit of an odd movie are they are they reading a subtext of a romance story between an adult man and a very very young girl no i think he no that's the thing i mean i think i mean you notice this is one of his director screenwriter producer gigs and i think that he was very conscious that if he didn't take the helm that's where it might end up going so he took charge of it and I don't think anyone's ever really leveled that because they're very clear about how it all goes together. And I think what people have trouble with most of all is possibly the idea that if that's not what's going on, which indeed he implies it's not, it's just that the the young girl wants to kill people and has a friend who helps the teacher how to do that. And I think that's what people find more disturbing in a sense is the fact that this is a film about the burgeoning 13 year old female psychopath who's willing <laughs> to kill people for money well i think i think of leon he's not an evil guy he seems quite chilled you know he's just he is the professional he just does his job and he, well, does, yeah, I mean, he doesn't take it home with him particularly. Yeah, you've got this great uh, performance by Jean Renault, uh, in which, and I think that, you know, they were all very conscious of this, that he has to go across as, he just does what he does. He's one of those people who just is what he is, and he's not particularly, he doesn't question it. And he, he, yeah, deals he might as well be a plumber in, in terms of how it affects how he is at home, really, isn't it? You know? Yeah, and, and so they, they're very careful to layer that into it. So the whole thing is, is kind of, I mean, it's a very odd story, this Leon. A lot of people really love the film, but it's still problematic because of the very nature of it. People made such a fuss about Nikita and how fantastic it was. He kind of wanted to say, well, yeah, but it's not, is it? Because in order to be that way, you have to be a bit broken. And here's my story about that. And people indeed found it a bit. Oh, okay. Uh, it doesn't. It's a, it's a film that willfully refuses to hang together. 
so yeah, so that, that, there's that, uh, which is a great. I mean, this is, you know, it's a perfectly decent movie. Um, and then, I mean, this is what's really weird to me. By the time The Fifth Element came out, I always thought of Luke Besson as, you know, a guy. I mean, yes, he had quite a lengthy CV of sorts by that time. But really, I mean, the big moments his career have so far added up to Nikita and Leon, really. And suddenly he's making The Fifth Element. And The Fifth Element, as we discussed recently, is not a film that looks like... I mean, I suppose, you know, what does a film that's done... You know, what is it about big space opera that relatively first-time directors or directors who've not sort of taken it on before seem to be able to just get their head round it's it? It's very quirky and very stylized, isn't it? That has to be said. I mean... Those advanced enlightened aliens going around in those giant egg suits with the dog heads on them, lumbering yeah. around, and yeah, it's it's just it's just quite bonkers. And apparently, it was a story he'd had in his head building since he was a kid. So, oh yeah, he wrote it down when he was fourteen hmm. in a in a journal, and then he sort of adapted it into that that screenplay. I always think these sort of childhood engineered stories are very wonderful when they can be realised. And it, it's oh, it's one of Bruce Willis's best films. Uh, my, my, to this day, I think I kind of said this last time. My criticisms of it are that they kind of leave Earth and they've got a big space opera, but they just go to one location, grab all the elements, and then goes back to Earth again. It's not much of a space opera, really. It's kind of a jaunt, space jaunt. Yeah, it's a space jaunt. Well, I think that's that's perfectly uh, that's the perfectly reasonable thing. I mean, there's so much to be realised in the rich palette of the movie. I mean, one of the things about it is, is it's it's kind of like Blade Runner in a red nose and a you know in red, Blade Runner in clown makeup. It's it's a bit weird yes. in that respect. It's not it? dreary, but at the same time, it's dreary. You know, it's not it's not grey, dull, you know, sort of sort of a world. It's it's actually got bright, vibrant colours, but yeah, it's it's still kind of a little bit of fascist. And your cigarettes are more filter than smoke. So, but and well, the the other thing about it is uh, that that of course, I mean, by Blade Runner, I don't just mean the the vision. I also mean like the soundtrack is is Vangelis after some serious antidepressives. (laughs) I mean, it's just like this kind of weird woobly electronic froth, uh, which is just... uh, All that stays in my mind is just, uh, you know, the uh, beating people, Lilu beating people up to the sound of opera. There is also that as well, but the opera indeed has been uh, electronically tweaked as well. So the whole thing is like this, this this sort of big melange of electronic... I mean, it, it, it... I think one of the things about it is when you first see it, you think it's frothy. But the fact that it's stuck around and is such a perennial favourite just shows. And I think it's that one, weirdly, of all these extravagant kind of futuristic sci-fi epics, it's probably one of the most underrated. I mean, it's got 71% on Rotten Tomatoes, for example, which is like, I think it probably deserves a bit better than that, just because it's a little bit odd. And, you know, it has to be said, you know, as the adaptation guy says, wow, I'm in the end. The end is a little bit weird or sort of. And then it's done by um, feels a little bit like the end of uh, the first Tomb Raider game where you fight your way all the way to the end and then essentially get a, a, a movie of someone running towards a boat. And that's it. And you're yeah. like, I worked all this time for that. It has some it has some downsides, but I don't think it's seventy. Well, I think I think they saved the Earth and then they bonked. It's pretty much James Bond in that regard. 
Yeah, but I don't think it's 29% not good. I think that that's a too high percentage of not good. But yeah, enough of my moaning. Uh, straight on, he goes straight on, taking the money that he made from The Fifth Element, which I assume was a reasonable success when people keep going back to it and back to it. So I think in historical terms, it did prove itself to be a success. And while he was... Um, and there was a lot of stuff about at this time about him being obsessed with Mila Jovovich. Um, well, I think that's probably a fair, fair accusation. Well, maybe he was. I mean, I think he was obsessed with getting her to play Joan of Arc because, I mean, for that reason, I mean, he he doesn't really bother with her after that. He's got this Joan of Arc movie clearly because it comes out in 1999 in his head. And so he just wants her to play Joan of Arc. And in the meanwhile, you know, while you're making Joan of Arc, uh, or as it's titled here, The Messenger, the story of Joan of Arc. Again, I think a film that's fairly unfair and that's unfairly treated. Now, I don't think it's a great classic of modern cinema, but 30% on Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, it's, it's really not that bad. I've seen it. It's, well, obviously, because I'm a big Luke Besson fan, but it's really 30%? Um, it is, well, you know, it's not quite the film. Biopic of Joan of Arc. It's it's not what people were, you know, clamouring for. I think it's a very good film. I think the ending, the the confessional to God in her cell, where where the whole myth is analysed and and you know she's kind of exposed to just kind of being a, a bit of a bit of a zealous nut that that perhaps she is, uh, is played out was very good, but. Yeah, I don't know. It's she. It was she was very well cast in that movie. I do agree. There's very few people you think well who could do it. Right. Okay. Okay. I'm just going to put it right here on the table so that we can walk away from it. No film in which Dustin Hoffman plays God can possibly be seventy percent rotten. It can't be. That's it. The end. Let's <laughs> let's move but, on. But we, before we move on, perhaps we should take a step back because we have just stepped right over Taxi. Oh, no, yeah, I was going to say, and in the midst of all of that, this epic uh, French military uh, medieval, uh, you know, if we're going to be 1999, then girl power kind of epic, is uh, him producing, writing and producing both Taxi and its sequel. One came out before The Messenger, the second came out after The Messenger. I, I saw Taxi, you you made me watch it, you put on the DVD and watched this, and pizza was ordered, and it was stuffed crust with cheese. So I just remember being in a nice warm flat, eat, having, having eaten lots of pizza, lying back, just full and satisfied, watching this totally bonkers action film about a man who can bizarrely get a taxi driver's license whilst not owning a driver's license. Yes. And then he drives the taxi. Oh boy, does he drive that taxi! I know it's like um, it's like the professional again. He is the ultimate taxi driver. Well, uh, uh, just all the stuff like I need to get to the, the airport in fifteen minutes. So, well, have this sick bag then. And then the the fact that the taxi that he's made has all this. He presses a button and all this stuff happens to the taxi, like spoilers and turbines and stuff. It's just this ridiculous fantasy taxi thing which is just um i mean and very quickly i mean taxi i mean many of these things well uh nikita uh the fifth element uh and taxi all show uh, a, a love of 
bon dessin, this sort of French comic book style thing. And one of the things that you may know, if you, particularly if you've sort of, I mean, yes, uh, Tintin is Belgian, but you know, it, it's the same idea, this continental idea of daily comic strips that, um, Tintin books, uh, stories all have the same sorts of elements. At some point, Tintin has to run in, into the Thompson twins and, and Captain Haddock has to say blistering barnacles. It, it, there are these conventions of things that happen in the, the comedy of a Tintin thing. Much the same way. And I think this is one of the things, you know, people often complain that, uh, you know, sequels are just reruns of the original thing. None more so than Taxi and Taxi 2. Taxi 2 is just you know, the police commissioner has to shout alert general at some point, and then there's the tall blonde woman, and then there's the taxi driver, and of course the policeman, he still can't drive, and it's ever so hilarious. And all the things that happened in the first one happen again in a slightly different way. Um, but of course it's not, you know, I mean, you know, once you get me on that, I mean, there's a Taxi 3 uh, coming up, and which I think I've seen. I might have, I might not have. And then there's a Taxi 4, which is telling me a taxi is a thing, and it keeps going. And all Taxi is, is these things happen again, because they caused surprise and delight the first time. So they're like an old friend, an old friend. Much more like a sequel in a conventional sense. I, taxi 2 was put on the DVD player straight after Taxi 1. <clears throat> I have to say, I... Taxi 2, not as good as the original. I mean, there was things like, you know, he had the taxi guy had to go over and inspect the tire marks left by the villains, and he was able to juice some important clue that helped the police. I thought, that's kind of stretching. That's kind of trying to find a way to work this guy in to be relevant to the police investigation. Uh, oh, I believe that uh, in Taxi 2 as well, there's a plot point about having to drive a, a long race or something. But, I mean, it's all an excuse to get the taxi in and to do the driving and to do all the stuff. So, you know, uh, I think that, and, and the fact of the matter is, you know, you're making Taxi in 1998, you're making Taxi 2 in 2000. You've had a lot longer to work on Taxi than the sequel. So who knows? Maybe Taxi 3 from 2003 is even better. I, I'm not sure whether I've seen it or not. And this is primarily because they're all pretty much the same and i know damn skippy that i haven't seen taxi 4 so you know, maybe i'll have did you to did you see was he involved at all with the uh, he must be involved with the uh, american yes he was yes if you look in 2004 he is credited as a writer and a producer of the american remake however uh, this may be one of those deals where he, he sold the the rights to make an american version for that you know it, he's it, a hustler it's had a, always had a bad reputation I have I have never seen well that's got a rotten tomatoes of ten percent and I can well believe that it's ninety percent rotten because I have never I all I knew when I saw that there was a remake. Yes, obviously Luke Besson sold the rights. He needs to get money to make good stuff. But Well, he was he was quite occupied in two thousand and four doing other things which you should get to in time. Which you should get to in time because we have the, there's one in here that doesn't even have a Wikipedia entry, the dancer from two thousand. We can't talk about that, don't know anything about it. This is the thing about it. I mean I consider myself a fan and yet these things come and they go he wrote it apparently and he produced it what is it we don't know uh but uh in 2001 and this is the point 2001 right here this is the point at which i went uh, from someone who knew who luke besson was and it was in fact i hadn't even seen taxi taxi of course was a french language film with subtitles and um it wasn't until i mean i bought the dvd of taxi for 
for no money, like basically out of a bargain bin. You know, like, but it had all over it, you know, ah, people think this is really fun. And, and I think this shows how long it goes that people have this attitude. And I, I, I say this about myself, but I think people generally have the same thing that it wasn't until around the millennium that people started to understand that foreign directors could do things other than moping and baguettes and black and white and, and nostalgia and, and, and people having unhappy love affairs and, and full frontal nudity. Yeah. Or all of that kind of stuff. They started to believe that they could do, you know, something else. And 2001 kiss of the dragon comes out and boom, there you are. That is the the moment I go and see The Kiss of the Dragon with Jet Li, Bridget Fonda, Checky Cario, and I walk in, I walk out. And it's one of my favourite movies, I think, probably, uh, because it, it was like, wow, that was so impressive. People generally quite lukewarm to it. I find that puzzling, because it, although, yes, it's not a great martial arts movie, you put Kiss of the Dragon next to something like uh, Ong Bak or whatever, and the martial arts are kind of there in service of the plot. It's not the best action movie in the world. The stakes are not high. You know, you put it next to Die Hard. But the point is that the martial arts are good enough to lift the action, and the action and the plot and the whole, you know, uh, atmosphere of it is good enough to raise the martial arts up so it doesn't matter that they're not as good. In my opinion, my opinion is shared by 51% uh, on Rotten Tomatoes. So who, what do I know? But yeah, I mean, I, I really love this film. I think it's got some great moments. It's a lot of fun. And it's just, yeah, it's, I, I really like it. And, and indeed, it turned me on to the whole Luc Besson thing. I don't think it was purely cemented until we get to the transporter, but it was definitely a thing in my head. I mean, in fact, I wouldn't have gone to see The Transporter except that it had Luke Besson's name on it because I remember when The Transporter came out, people were like, there's a film called The Transporter with that guy from Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Bowls in it. I think it's supposed to be an action movie. Mm. This is what's amazing about The Transporter is that I think people kind of forget how uninspiring the name is when you know nothing about the property that it goes with, you like, now the transporter is synonymous with bald-headed, high-speed, action-chase, gunfire, you know, all of this kind of stuff. But at the time, it was just a thing. It came out in the cinema. I mean, the thing that keeps these movies going and that keeps them afloat is the fact that they're cheap. It's not that expensive, so they just need to make some money, and then they'll be fine. Well, in terms of talking about schlock, and yes, it's schlock, but it's fun schlock, and fun is fun is a very difficult quality to inject into things, and so often seems to be left out in action movies. So there's just simply the joy and humour of it all, as well, which I think Luc Besson brings to stuff. It's never going to be a dull story normally. In between uh, all of this uh, stuff, and this is where you can see he's taken a big step back in terms of direction. He's now writing a lot. He's now producing a lot. Now, my personal theory on this, first of all, he's turning out directors who do stuff like Louis Leterrier directed at least one of these movies. Can't remember which one it was specifically. But then he went on to do uh, Clash of the Titans and he went he went to America and the, the Incredible Hulk, not the original Hulk, that obviously 
previously was Ang Lee, uh, and stuff like that. And he and and uh, now you see me. So he's gone on to work in Hollywood and have a, a reasonable sort of career. Olivier Megaton, he's done some other stuff as well. So what he's really doing is nurturing talent to go off and do stuff elsewhere. And you know, well, it it, it, it makes me think of him as a creative force. He's seems to be much more comfortable in this time. Yes, he's providing a platform to grow other talent that's very laudable but he seems far more comfortable being a writer producer i mean he's yes. like here's a script i'll produce it you go out and do it it's almost like because directing is let's face it it's freaking hard work and i think a lot of the joy of creativity is just in the planning and scripting and pre-production stages of it all of the excitement the actual going out and shooting it is a bit of a war zone let's face it yes I think grabbing what you can so yeah i mean we've got these two uh French language movies in between, one of which he wrote, the other which he produced, 2001, Yamakasi, which I'm quite keen on seeing now. I don't know where the hell I'd get hold of a copy, which is like a parkour movie that he wrote, and Le Turbulence des Fluides, which is apparently a French-Canadian film that he produced. So it is, and oh, and we must not forget the French language wasabi, Jean Renault on fine form again. It's yet another bizarre Jean Renault action vehicle in which he discovers that when he was when he was in Japan and uh, had a relationship with a Japanese woman, he knocked her up and she never told him he has a daughter and then she dies and he has to go and, and relate to this daughter. You made um, me watch then, this, I think. What? I think you made me yes, watch this one. I did. It's the one with the golf where he, he goes and plays golf with the villain halfway through the movie, just bizarrely. Um, and then, and then uh, there's gangsters trying to kill his well, daughter. Well, Sean Connery did the same in Goldfinger, so why not? Yeah, yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, and there's, yeah, there's, um, there's a bit in a department store where he's knocking out, stealth knocking out gangsters who are trying to kill his daughter while he's not, while she's shopping well, yeah, for clothes. It's, it's, it's an action film. But whilst the guy is dealing with the fact he suddenly has a daughter and learning to adjust to that with, with, with hilarious consequences. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, I mean, these films are not scoring very high on the older Rotten Tomato scale. I think there's a thing about Luke Besson. It's like you're either in the mood to get it or you're not in the mood to get it. And if you're not in the mood to get it, nobody can well, make it. It's easy to sit back and go, well, that's just silly. You can pretty much say that about all his films. Well, that's just silly. Taxi, that's just silly. The whole thing. What a damn thing It is undeniable they're all stupid, but glorious stupid, the best kind of stupid. So, you know, that's my opinion. So there we go. 2003, we have Cheeky, which we know nothing about, but he produced that, so it's probably another French-Canadian thing, I would imagine, or something similar. He's doing a lot of that stuff at that time. You th- look at these years in which he's doing all this stuff that is nothing to do with the things that you remember him for, and you think, oh, I don't remember him going quiet, and uh, oh, wow, this looks like hilarious fun. Fan Fan Le Tulip, uh, starring uh, Vincent Perret and Penelope Cruz, and it's a French swashbuckling action adventure produced and written by Luc Besson. Yeah. How the hell can I n- not instantly run out and try and find a uh, copy of it. Because it's 17% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, bollocks. I don't believe that at all. Well, you yeah. say you say this is, a, this is a dry period in terms of things you remember about him. I mean, Jason Statham uh, is the first thing that springs to mind when you think of Transporter, but it's it's famously got uh, Besson's fingerprints all over it, surely. 
and the, Taxi 3 was during this period, and we're, we're rolling in towards District 13 fairly soon yes, as well. Yes, of course. Well, no, I mean, if you go between 2002, 2004, that's two years. Many directors, producers, whatever, just make this many films in this amount of time. I mean, so although... You think, all oh, right, so he did The Transporter and then he did District 13. And people go, uh, 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 he did The Transporter. Then he did, you know, he was working on five different projects and then he worked with on District 13. Uh, let us take a minute to consider the glory of District. I mean, I have, I can't tell you whether I've seen Taxi 3 or not. I've definitely seen the DVD cover, which leads me to suppose that at some point I may have seen the movie. I, I'm surprised how quickly you're stepping over the transporter. I mean, admittedly, there's not much to say about the transporter. It kind of is what it is. But it, it's, I will always go see another transporter movie. Always. Oh, yeah, sorry, I thought I did that whole thing about how it's a weird title to have. Yes, well, how it's been, 2002... I remember dragging people to see the transporter. They're like, what is this even about? About someone who transports things and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, everybody has a good time and you come out and you go, wow, I can't believe the film was about that. That was crazy. Uh, I remember one of the things that the transporter was at round about the same time as Brotherhood of the Wolf. And suddenly it seemed that French people had changed direction and gone in this crazy martial arts action adventure kind of mold. Uh, and I was loving it. And yeah, the transporter uh, is definitely, you know, it's, just, it's important for Jason Statham, who is now, you know, Jason Statham. And it, because I think that all of that stuff that Jason Statham did with Guy Ritchie, Snatch and Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Bowls, however fluid the dialogue was, however, it was all Cockney gangster stuff. And when you put Jason Statham in a Cockney gangster kind of core blimey governor uh, kind of environment, it's very hard to see that he'll be able to do anything else. If you have the part of Chev Chelios a man who's been uh, injected with some strange cocktail of drugs and has to keep moving or his heart, blah, blah, blah. And then you go, yeah, I've got just the guy to play, Chev Chelios. It's Jason Statham. You go, <laughs> no, no, he's from London. Chev, does Chev Chelios sound? And yet he made it work. And well, he's, he's, he's like the Sean Connery of, of lowbrow yes. action movies, isn't he? Yeah, I, I do believe that the transporter totally plays into this because everyone else in, in the transporter is either a shifty oriental, not, not that I'm saying that all oriental shifty, it's just the ones in the transporter are, you understand, uh, because that's the way that Luke Besson rolls. He's not, he's not all about positive. It's like, oh, we're being, we, we, in, in the oriental world of the transporter, you're either the kind of person who sells their fellow countrymen in people trafficking deals, or you're a people being trafficked. There's no real in-between ground on that. Um, but then all the, the other people are all French, very French, with baguettes and onions and hoop sweaters and God knows what. And and then there's Jason Statham, just out of nowhere. And I think what that is, is like if it was a French person being the transporter, it would kind of take away something from the transporter. It's like your kind, your brain is kind of going, why is this random, random geezer? In the middle of all this French stuff, I think it's, 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 martial arts. It's always the joy. We, we did we did kind of know who Statham was. We recognised him as that dude from that thing. So yes. he wasn't a complete unknown commodity. It was just it's just great that the guy has hit the gym and done some martial arts. As like, well, dude, you've just well, got a whole new colour to your palette. 
Well, uh, Jason Statham was always, he was an Olympic uh, diving athlete. So he was always a fit guy. Uh, but, and then of course, I mean, somewhere around here, he will have done the one with, uh, Jet Li, much to his, that was one of the ones where they tried to make him do an American accent. Didn't really work out. Um, and, and so obviously he's got a martial arts enthusiasm at this point. He's perfectly capable of doing these action scenes. And of course, Luke Besson is like, uh, people have described him as the European Roger Corman. It's an exploitation idea. It's like Jason likes martial arts. I've got an action movie. Let's have Jason do some martial arts in the action movie. Yay! You know, that's, that's the way it's all going down. And, and, you know, so yeah, I mean, the, the transporter is definitely, I mean, there's more to talk about with the transporter, because of course we have two more transporter movies coming up, and then we have more transporter coming in the future. So yes, the transporter has become a thing, and that's just bonkers, the idea that there's a franchise based around a character called the transporter. If there's any more ugly or clumsy word for some kind of action hero than he's the transporter it's just like really it's just he's the train spotter um you know just ridiculous so skipping forward back again to district 13 in 2004 again it's a completely silly premise it Uh, is a completely silly premise uh but it's another this is the one where it's like the quite clearly i mean this is what's hilarious to me about it uh hilarious to me about i mean luke besson here exposes the the joke of rotten tomatoes in that district 13 is no more or less silly than anything else yes it's got 80 percent on rotten tomatoes where is this coming from it's like the other films are just as silly and yet they get 56 whatever it is and yet this one gets 80 percent weird okay fine but yeah i think one of the things that obviously helps with this is that the parkour that's a big part of district 13 david bell is one of the main characters and in 2004 i think it was the first time that a lot of people really saw parkour happening anywhere i remember that first chase from district 13 was all over the youtubes Mm. everyone was watching the rest of the film was given a pass just because of that first bit now uh that's all fine that's good let us not forget however that district 13 was more than parkour in District 13, uh, David Bell's oppo, his other half, his, the other, the, 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 his buddy in the buddy movie part of the plot, is Cyril Raffaelli, a fine French martial artist and kind of acrobatic style geezer who doesn't get half the love that David Bell gets. And, uh, I find that to be a shame. So I just thought I would make a point of mentioning that. Uh, so let me uh, skip straight over the American remake of Taxi. Uh, we also have Crimson Rivers 2, Angels of the Apocalypse. Don't know anything about it. It's a French thriller. Luke Besson wrote it. But he didn't write Crimson Rivers. I'm pretty sure Crimson Rivers is available to, to stream on one of our streaming services. Uh, maybe it is. I don't know. But yes, he wrote that. It's a French thriller with John Renault. So, you know, all buddies together again. Here's one that I really should have seen and I have not. Angel A or Angela or however you say it. 
Yes, he's back writing, producing and directing. I meant to see this by the time I remember being conscious of hearing that it was coming out, knowing that it wasn't a silly action movie or any of this kind of stuff, but knowing that he was getting back in the director's seat and writing and producing. And this was his thing that he wanted to do. And to my shame, I have not to this time seen this movie. But I, I know that it exists and it is something I, I really feel I want to, to catch up with. But uh, pressing on. Uh, so, yes, we have to press on with that because we don't, we can't really say anything about it. There are probably people who are big fans of that movie who are now cursing our name. He produced something called Bunker Paradise. That's all we know about it. I'm imagining that Colour Me Kubrick, another production, is, oh, it's a Franco-British comedy drama. Well, there we go. With John Malkovich in it. Well, there we go. Well, he knew John Malkovich was... from, uh, Joan of Arc impersonating director Stanley Kubrick since the early 1990s. Well, that sounds like fun. Um, um, there was, in fact, a guy who was doing that, a conference trick. I don't know what Stanley Kubrick really looked like before the age of the internet. It was an incredibly yeah. aloof actor. So, yes, it's, I think it's good. Oh, it's, yes, it's based on a true story. To be fair, Lou Besson's 2005 must have been a bit hectic because not only did he write, direct, and produce Angel A., but he also produced Bunker Paradise, produced Calumny Kubrick. There's something called Imposture here that he produced, which uh, doesn't have a link, so we can't tell you anything about that. He wrote, co-wrote and produced Revolver, which I find quite disturbing, to be honest. Uh, like Richie movie. Jason Statham again. Oh, but it's such a terrible movie. The Three Burials of Mel Criades Estrada, he produced that. Then he wrote and produced Transporter 2, uh, and wrote and produced Unleashed, and then he produced The Film and Au Suivant. So basically, yeah, what's how many credits that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, about nine. So not quite one a month, but he was, he was deeply involved in something all the time in that year. Uh, so. Quentin Tarantino, he is not. Uh, Transporter 2, after the main villain is dispatched, it has one of my favourite lines in it, which was, he was a bastard, but he was my father. But anyway, carry on. <laughs> yes. I, I think I can probably forgive a variable quality in 2005 on the grounds that, the well, one, well, he was producing a lot, so there was a lot of stuff which was not written or directed by <laughs> It was just helping to get made. And second of all, because he must have been, he must have not known what day of the week it was. He was still working on his heart attack the following year, though. He didn't slow down particularly. No, no, because then he, he wrote, produced and directed Arthur and the Invisibles. Although, uh, technically speaking, uh, what he actually directed was whatever the French title of that movie is, because Arthur and the Invisibles, he got into a famous spat with Miramax in 2006 because uh, Frenchmen being the type uh, to call an idiot an idiot, just acute. Uh, Miramax is famous, in fact, now that I come to think about it, for interfering with projects because in the view of the Weinsteins, the product is not suitable for audiences in their opinion. And the audience sometimes has a different view on this. Uh, for example, as an audience member, I viewed that Grindhouse would have been better as its three-hour Grindhouse, you know, despite the fact that the butchering of the movie led to the delight of Planet Terror and the less delight of Death Proof, which I've never seen, so maybe it's great, I don't know. But the fact is that they believed that European audiences 
who had given Quentin Tarantino his big push in the first place, would not understand the ironicness of Grindhouse because American audiences, who, let's not forget, uh, completely ignored Quentin Tarantino until the Europeans went nuts for it. Because the Americans didn't get Grindhouse, we never got Grindhouse in its original form. Well, you have to admit, American cinema culture has you know, pretty much stayed in America. It's in no way bled out and influenced the entire world, has it? No, not in any way. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, one of the things that probably the arguments was made is that Europe didn't have grindhouse cinemas. And it's like, yes, but we're in the postmodern era where we can have nostalgia for an experience that not only nobody had, because actually what they said was that grindhouse is not even, it's a pastiche of something that never existed. Um, but the, yeah, so therefore, given that, we can have nostalgia for an experience we could never possibly have had, not only because it didn't exist, because we were in the wrong country not to have that experience that didn't exist. That's the craziness of postmodernism, people. But they, the Weinsteins didn't trust it, so they cut it apart. Well, Snowpiercer recently famously got nearly met the axe, but they compromised, in quote, quote unquote, uh, in that they gave it a much more limited release, but left it untouched. But then people were very happy about that. But I, we, I can't say, because I've still not seen Snowpiercer. So, uh, and again, uh, you know, when they took the scissors to Arthur and the Invisibles and tried to make it a little bit more audience friendly, Luke Besson called him a twat. And that was it. I, he did? Li- literally? Those words? Yeah, he literally said, you oh. that Harvey Weinstein just butchered my movie. Yes. Luke Besson just won an award in my head. Well (laughs) done, sir. I I love the man even more than I did already. So um, I would would very much like to see the original French subtitled version of Arthur and the Invisibles. I don't know if it's available, but I went to see it in the cinema. It was a bit meh, but then I understand this is because uh, it's not actually the movie that was made. I remember this movie, the next one in 2006, Bandidas. I believe it has Salma Hayek in it. It does, and Penelope Cruz. I haven't seen it. I probably should. It's it's the same as all the others. So, yeah, I probably should. And I should probably... The, pro- the problem with it is, you know, these things kind of circle around. I mean, it got 62%, right, on Rotten Tomatoes. And apparently that's almost the same as some of the other stuff that he's done. The transporter got 54, so apparently it's better than the transporter. Well, if that's true, I must run out and watch it immediately. So, yeah, what, I, what, what this career is telling me is that you can't really trust... Well, this is a big... This is a... Oh, big news. You can't really trust Rotten Tomatoes. But, you know, this really shows I'm, that. I'm, I'm willing to bet the majority of Rotten Tomatoes is American uh, reviewers, though, isn't it? And... Oh, yeah, Definitely. So so if it doesn't quite click with a certain American sensibility. So I suppose you have to kind of give like a a, a sort of review shift 20% bonus to Luc Besson or something. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Uh, So yes, then he's producing Love and Other Devasters, which uh, seems like a very unlikely film. Even given Luc Besson's insane diversity in the first place, it seems a bit of a weird project for him. So what else have we got here that... uh, that came out in that year. Uh, Nuovo Mondo, literally the new world, uh, which is a, a drama film of uh, migration from Italy to New York at the beginning of the 20th century. Well, tomatoes wow. quite like this one, well, apparently. Yes. Uh, when I Was a Singer, a French movie, with Gerard Depardieu, of course. 
the most Frenchiest of French actors. Franco-Belgian comedy attaining a cult status in France. That's a Dickenek. Belgian type humour. <laughs> Apparently then, that's a thing, is Belgian type humour. And so yes, that's, 2006 was a movie of running around doing a lot of stuff for a laugh by the look of things. Um, and, and last of all, uh, which should be mentioned uh, extremely, uh, he produced a film called Tell No One. Uh, Tell No One, it's interesting actually, because I went to see Tell No One at the cinema with the good lady wife, as it happens. Must have been one of the first films we went to see together. Ah, that's cute. Uh, which has got ni- ni- an insane yes. 4%. I think, I think the few people that went to see it freaking loved it. Yes, uh, Sue really likes it, uh, which is in- interesting because essentially Tell No One is kind of like one of these things that have been made popular in the advent of uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. It's just like a French crime thriller. It's not particularly much more than that. It has a little bit of a twist in it, in that um, you know a man believes his wife is dead and then sees her on a camera and then there's a crime and stuff happens. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fairly unremarkable, to be honest. I mean, it's not bad. It's just, it's, 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 I, to a certain extent, I find it quite televisual. It's not really, it's not really cinematic. It's just a sort of decent thriller. So there we go. I, I'm trying not to damn with faint praise, with which I feel I've failed in. But yeah, we also have, uh, so then 2007, the production train rolls on with the secret taxi for the one that i know that i haven't made now i never knew this i never knew that he produced uh hitman yeah which uh a video game uh, thing i did not know that he, he was he, anything he was that. actually you'd you think about it and go yeah he'd be a good fit to work on a movie of the um popular video game hitman you would think yes i approve of this choice but uh, yeah hitman was an underwhelming film it was i mean 14 percent on the on tomatoes i feel is a little bit unfair it wasn't Super, but it wasn't fourteen percent. It was wasn't that. And we also have frontiers that he. It should have been forty-seven percent, but uh, that's the irony in me. Ho ho! Uh, frontiers apparently is a French horror movie, which I I'm just building up this list of things. It's like I should really catch up with these things. I've got this massive stack of things I can now go and look for to go and watch because I'm like, wow, these are things I should really watch. And then of course, two thousand eight rolls round. It's time for the Transporter 3. It's time for District 13 Ultimatum, which was a perfectly decent movie, it has to be said. I will, I will. They, they upped the parkour a bit, didn't they? People like the parkour. More of that, please. No, no, no. no. District 13 has far less parkour in it than the first one. Really? You've got, must have got that mixed up. No, it's a lot more martial arts in District 13 Ultimatum. Oh, it's Um, dashing, dashing around the room doing stuff. Oh, yeah, that's more martial arts, you know. Parkour is very strictly over urban landscapes and that Oh, right. Well, I was watching it, and it's the way they were navigating the landscape instantaneously and doing doing bizarre things with the environment. But, uh, anyway, carry on. To more acrobatic, I would say, than parkour. Parkour is definitely from point A to point B, not round and round in circles. So, yeah, so, I mean, I had David Bell in it again, so, you know, that's what you're going to get. But, uh, and the bizarre thing where Cyril Raffaelli dressed up as a woman. This is the kind of thing. Well, District, District 13 is kind of, has, in its sequel, although it hasn't got a third sequel yet, and I say yet, because who knows what's going to happen, but yeah, it's very much got that, if you're going to make a sequel, it's going to be in that sort of 
transporter taxi mold where the same things are going to happen again. Now, you see, this is one of the things where it's like, that's got a 37% Rotten Tomato rating. I don't know people who don't really enjoy Transporter 3. So, we have to mention, of course, Taken in 2000. That's obligatory. Liam Nielsen. No, Liam Nielsen. Liam Nielsen. Nielsen. That's a very different movie. Yes, forget that entirely. Uh, Liam Nielsen, I, who I once, after Darkman, famously said he's not really an action actor, really, is he? He's an actor, actor. And my goodness, here we are, I was wrong all these years later, over a decade later, I'm terribly wrong, because he was kick-ass in that, and since then he has been favoured of a lot of people for this kind of movie. The one he recently did on an aeroplane. Yes. People are like, I've got to go see that. I've got to go see. He's in it doing his thing it's again. Called Not stop. Yes, something like that. So yeah, he, he has landed. This made this made him. He was big before. You know, he was in Star Wars for goodness sake. But gosh, wow. Okay, carry on, sir. Just walk through him and kill everyone in it with your well, he's, he's certain kind of set like of skills. A, a modern day Charles Bronson, very much so. So you know, this is this way. Yes, taken. I mean. Taken did what could basically be described as insane business, bearing in mind, you know, bearing in mind the sort of the whole thing. I mean, the budget, $25 million, box office, $226 million. Is there going to be a sequel? Of course there's going to be a sequel. Of course there's going to be a sequel. And in fact, the sequel took gangbusters money, despite everyone really not being that impressed by it. I have to reserve judgment. I've only seen it at the cinema taken to, and I understand that there isn't. Basically what they do is they cut it down so that it can be seen by everyone in the cinema, but that takes out most of the cool violence, so then you have to buy the extended harder cut to see it properly. So yes, I still haven't seen Taken 2 in its natural environment, as it were, due to the fact that it, I just, you know, when they put it on streaming services, it's always the cinematic cut, so I actually have to go and buy the extended harder cut, and I just haven't seen it at a price I like yet. But yeah, so Taken cannot be underestimated in the fact that that really gave a shot in the arm to Europa Corp as a whole, that now that they've got all this stuff. So we've got Home, which is uh, in 2000, moving on to 2009. Sorry, District 13 Ultimatum is officially 2009. My eyes were blurry, obviously. He obviously took a, a bit of a rest in 2008, just writing and producing the two movies, just writing and producing two this year, just two. Not producing nine movies yes. in one. <laughs> I just, I thought I'd take it easy. Yes, yeah, so to have a, a sequel to Arthur, which of course he wrote, produced and directed, because by this time, notice that he steps into the director's chair, I believe, and I, he did say this in an interview just this week, when he doesn't trust other people to get it right. And so obviously after the Arthur and the Invisibles, which he did direct, but then it got recut, he was like, I'm not letting anyone else touch this. I like this. Uh, but yes, uh, even though he, he did take over exclusive control over the Arthur sequel, uh, Rotten Tomatoes duly punished him heavily for doing that. And we've already demonstrated you can't really trust these scores with relation to this. I think there's a thing where it's like there are certain people who just get irritated by Luc Besson's touch on something because... You have to just accept that it's going to have a measure of complete fantasy and stupidity in it. And some people just don't want to accept that. So he's back uh, doing a bit of writing uh, the following year. And indeed, yes, he's doing uh, writing 
and indeed uh, producing and directing for the various reasons that we've already talked about. We have From Paris with Love, which uh, tried to do for John Travolta what Taken had done for Liam Neeson. And uh, we have to be fair, was not entirely successful. Yes, I'd um, say, where did John Travolta go? Because he had his third comeback, and this was the big time guys, and he seemed to be everywhere for a while, and they'd quietly slipped away. So I was, I was like, has he made a film in the last ten years? I don't know. But well, from apparently he did, like, yeah. Yes. Uh, have you not seen From Paris with Love? I have not seen this film, no. It's it's perfectly... It's it's what I would describe as a standard Luc Besson action movie in that it... I think what it is is that with Taken, being exploitation-minded, uh, Luc Besson writes with the idea of exploiting Liam Neeson's sort of doer persona to bring out the character in Taken. And so for the same reason, he has a meeting with John Travolta and he writes one of the parts in From Paris with Love to play to, you know, the, the supposed strengths of what John Travolta Well, John Travolta doesn't look like much like John Travolta in the film as well, does he? He's... No, he does this uh, crazy CIA. He's a CIA maverick who's got his own way of doing things. And he's very much reprising uh, his sort of... The, the sort of personality quirk of the bad guy persona from Face Off. He's, he's kind of in that, woohoo, I'm being crazy mode. It's fine. I mean, it, it's really, it's, it's a good hour and a half with all the things you'd expect, but it taken, it isn't. It doesn't have that same visceral gut punch as, as that. It's just a fairly standard action movie. Uh, at the same time, he's uh, writing, directing, and producing both Arthur 3. I really feel I should give the Arthur series another chance, uh, seeing as the first one. I know that it got butchered, and that's, and I just, it's, well, the problem with these things when they get recut for other people, other audiences, is that if I wanted to get hold of the original French with English subtitles, how would I do that? Because everyone will want to give me the English version of all of the films, won't they? So, uh. Whatever. But let us home in. Uh, he did also produce uh, a film which, whose English title is 22 Bullets in 2010. Just want to mention that. Before we move on to the extraordinary adventures of Adele Blancsec, what I want you to do is imagine that Lara Croft got drunk one night in a bar and bumped into Tintin. And then the resulting love child was brought up entirely on the first three Indiana Jones movies. And that child was Adele Blancsec in <laughs> Victorian Paris. This is one of the most bonkers. And again, it's like, Luke Besson clearly was like, I have just written this fantastic female action hero called Adele Blancsec. White and dry, by the way. Uh, that's what her surname means. He, he want, he's got this female action hero. He wants it to look good. He wants it it's in this sort of Victorian adventure with dinosaurs in Paris. And he's like, who can I trust to direct this? And the answer is nobody. So he directed himself. And a, it's got, it's got dinosaurs. It's got mummies. It's got steampunk. It's just a delight, an insane delight for 90 minutes. The extraordinary adventures of Adele Blancsec. Amazing. So, yes, rush out and get it immediately. It, it does sound utterly bonkers. It has to be given a try for that reason alone. 
Uh, we seem to have skipped over from Paris with Love, Harvey. No, no, no that was the John Travolta one. No, I, I Love You, Philip Morris, which I... Oh, yeah, well, he produced that. I mean, it's interesting. I've seen it. But, yes, he got them some money and sort of said, yeah, this is good. Have you you've seen it? I like it. No, no, no. I just clicked on. I thought that's an interesting premise for a film. Jim Carrey, you and McGregor. <clears throat> I've never heard of it. But it's like yes. Oh it's... No, no, yes. It's it's a it's a fine movie. It's it's very much the movie that it is. I don't think he was very hands on. I think he just helped. He he thought it was a good idea as well, and he decided to lend a bit of that Luke Besson magic dust. Uh, we're in 2011 now, and we have. The Lady, which is another one he's written, produced, directed. Another one, like um, Angel A, that I knew of. I wanted to see it. It's kind of a historical biopic. Just, I haven't really had time to sit down and take it in yet, to my shame. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a lot more proactive, I suppose, about rushing out to see something with explosions, which is what a lot of people are guilty of. But, I, you know, I'm a big fan of the guy, so I should really make the effort. To my shame. It's got Michelle Yeoh in it as well, so how bad can it be? 33% apparently, but we've already discovered that's a load of rubbish because underneath it, Colombiana with Zoe Saldana has 27%, and I have seen that, and merely for one gag involving a rocket launcher, that deserves a pass. Hmm. I'm surprised to a certain extent that he did not direct Colombiana, being as he wrote and produced it. Because, oh, well, this is Olivier Megaton, so, you know, he's a trusted Luc Besson cohort. But yes, this is a, a very, I think people possibly were like, oh, it's just another woman kicking ass. It's like, people, how many Arnold Schwarzenegger, Dolph Lundgren, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Steven Seagal, Chuck Norris, Charles Bronson, do you want me to go on? You know, it's a movie where one woman kicks ass once. Oh, I'm bored. Uh, it, it does it, it does expose sexism because they wouldn't even comment on it if it was a guy, but it's a woman. They're going, oh, it's so passe. It's a woman. Well, oh, she's just blowing stuff up. <laughs> yes, it's it's like well, you you just just expose your biases there, haven't you, sir? Yeah. So uh, yeah. Uh, Although I, he I, does he does start to get a bit of a bit of kickback for stereotyping stereotyping Colombia. Uh, well, he, yeah, but this is Luke Besson, the man with the filthy Arabs in French, and the well, yes, the, the, and you know the, the accuser. You know, he loves his gangsters, doesn't he? If, if the, if the culture, I can't, I can't help but notice is that in all of this, it was 2005, the Mad Year. Yes, it was. I comp- we completely forgot to mention while we were on the subject, Unleashed, formerly known as Danny the Dog. The Jet Lee one, where he's uh, owned by Bob Hoskins. It's kind of like a Dickensian martial arts have you not seen this movie no no oh these latter half movies off seriously off my radar unleashed is a cracking movie it's not entirely successful i have to admit that but essentially the premise is that bob hoskins is a gangster so that's always a good start he's a proper london gangster but it's filmed mostly in glasgow which is a bit weird but basically, he's uh, picked up this Chinese orphan who is Jet Li, who is obviously he has since trained to become a massive martial arts super. And he takes him around to underground fighting clubs and and makes him win underground fighting stuff for money. He's also used as the enforcer. And, and um, 
Jet Li has never, Jet Li's character, Danny, has never really interacted with the world except via this Fagin-like figure of Bob Hoskins. And then, and he's controlled with an electric collar. Like if, if Jet Li does something bad, Bob Hoskins presses the button and then Jet Li is rendered unable to move and thrown on the floor. So somehow in some incident, and the, I think there's a car crash and the, the collar gets broken and Jet Li escapes. And then Bob Hoskins chases him and Jet Li gets pity taken on him by a young music student and it plays out. And as you could probably tell from the setup, it is quite Dickensian and a great film with some great martial arts sequences. The tone is a bit all over the place, but it's it's definitely a fascinating one-off movie of which there is none like it with a soundtrack by Massive Attack. Uh, so, yes, so mm. interesting on a number of levels. Uh, so, yes, uh, sorry, I completely missed that and got straight over. We're getting up to the modern da- day now, anyway. Uh, we're getting into the end of 2011. I still haven't seen A Monster in Paris, which I really should have done. Which, which people, which Ron Tomato seems to have liked. Yes, people generally did like A Monster in Paris, which is why I should have seen it and just haven't. Uh, we've got Lockout. I'm surprised Lockout doesn't have a Rotten Tomato score, weirdly. I'm sure it would be low if it did. This is the one where Guy Pierce goes to a space station and kicks... Uh, basically, the bizarre premise of this movie is that there's an outer space prison where prisoners are kept in, in cryogenic stasis. And the prisoners all seem to be, like, they basically seem to have taken the streets of Glasgow on a Friday night and put them in these freezer tubes. Because uh, basically the daughter of the president of Earth is on the ship when there's, oh, there's a breakout. And then Guy Pierce is sent into, and then it's die hard on an interstellar penal colony where there's two crazy Scottish psychopaths running a breakout. Uh, and hilarity ensues. Uh, so I'm convinced that a lot of these things just did not make it to my local multiplex, and that's why I never saw them because I, yeah. I, I hardly heard of most of these. Lockout is definitely one that you would be most interested in. It is pure schlock B movie sci fi genius with graphics that people unkindly said were taken straight out of a PlayStation 2. I think that's a bit unfair, but I, it's the general. General, Taken Two came out, uh, made a lot of money, uh, was not universally liked. Hasn't stopped there being Taken Three coming up. Transporter the series is producing that, and it's an ongoing problem. We've got uh, so called No Limit here. I don't know what that is. Oh, it's a television series, French television series, which he produced and wrote some of the episodes. Produced something called Collision, which I don't know anything about English language French romantic thriller film well there we go starring Frank Grillo and Jamie Alexander on break from duties for Marvel Studios no doubt well no doubt because that must be what they were doing and uh, yes last this this year last year last year Last year, weirdly, we have The Family, which yes. I remember coming out, which was a film written, produced and directed by Lou Besson, which I had no, I had no interest in. Yes. Um, uh, it was one of those films that came, it was forced me to watch unskippable trailers for on YouTube. I was watching it going, I have no interest in seeing this film whatsoever. This advert has now convinced me I need to avoid this film for the rest of my life. 
Why on earth would I want to watch it? If they put Luke Besson anywhere in that advert, I might have been interested. As it was, I, like it just seems tedious. I do think that Robert Sorry. De Niro gazumped Luke Besson in the. They tried to push it as a Luke as a Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro mixing up two of his favorite roles as his character from The Godfather meets his character from Meet the Fuckers, and that's what they that's what they wanted to sell you. And you were like, oh, that doesn't really sound. Well, it's it's also the fact that it's it's Michelle Pfeiffer and the kids, and the kids are kind of crazy, insane as well. Yeah, and it's like, oh, this sounds obnoxious. Have to try that. We've got uh, a French animation called Jack and the Cuckoo Clock Heart. That looks weird. Based on a concept album, apparently. How French? By French rock band Dionysos. So, yes, uh, I shall definitely be uh, intrigued to catch up with that. Now, it marks three days to kill, trying to do for uh, Kevin Costner what Taken did for Liam Neeson, as 2013. It may well have got released in 2013 in the States. Here, it got released for a fortnight this summer, and I couldn't, I just, I actually, it was really difficult to get to see it because I only go and see the cinema, to the cinema if I can go and see more than one thing at once. Unless it's an emergency, and it could have been an emergency, I would have gone to a local cinema and paid to see it, but they didn't have it. This is what what has been done to this movie, so I don't think Kevin oh, Costner... You had, you had it released for two weeks? Oh, you were lucky. He's a dream of having a film around for two weeks. Um, well, the problem if, was that they released it. Well, I was going to say, yes, I was going to say, because it's, you know that bit in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where he says, don't go between the boats, and then she says, what, come between the two boats, and they go between the two boats. And, you know, the boats come together, and they just get through just in time without getting crushed. Uh, that's what happened here, except it got crushed. It was, yes, it's, it, because it went in between uh, the massive opening to the summer and prior to the massive close to the summer and in the middle where the World Cup and the Commonwealth Games were happening. And so it got kind of, it's like a single pebble being dropped into a still pond of no releases whatsoever. And it got, yeah, it got, it got killed by neglect, basically. There wasn't anything else to see, so nobody wanted to see it. Bizarrely, Brick Mansions is, was released in the UK before Three Days Kill, another film that I didn't manage to catch. Now, he is credited as a producer and a writer on that, but that's just because Brick Mansions is kind of like a, a retread of District 13 in English, such as American producers like do. Uh, I can kind of believe the 27% rating because what they kind of did. Now, I don't wish to speak ill of the dead, but Paul Walker was the buddy of David Bell in Brick Mansions. And by all accounts, whereas when you buddy a parkour genius up with a martial arts genius, you get an hour and a half of high octane thrills and excitement. When you partner up a, a parkour genius with a man who likes to talk about the bro code while brandishing a weapon and not really doing anything with it. Guess what you get? A lot of brandishing weapons and talking about the bro code and not doing anything about it. So, yeah. So I believe that Luke Besson is involved with that project by dint of the fact that he allowed them to rip off District 13 only. But of course, this brings us up to the present, almost to the present moment where America have already had this and they're loving it. Although America are loving it more than Rotten Tomatoes would have you believe, apparently. I'm quite fine to hear that America love it. We've also had it over here in Australia. It's, it's come and gone. And it's, yes, it's very French and it's a hard thing to define, I know. But there's, there's, there's a lot of 
touches and swings to it, which are very kind of, this is, this is avant-garde. This is interesting. The, in, the intercutting of natural history film, uh, with your building suspense sequences to highlight the danger as well. The slowly building, you know, every so often there'll be like blackness, but with some stark white letters, which give you the percentage at which, um, Scarlett Johansson has, uh, you know, gain mastery over her own brain as it slowly builds towards 100%. It's, it's like these little touches just wouldn't get from an American director at all. And indeed, it's, it's so philosophical. Again, it's one of these ideas he's had building for a very, very long time. So, you know, this is a combination of an awful lot of thought. So there's some moments in there where, you know, ultimately she, she's, I don't want to spoil it because you haven't seen it. No. But the combination for her for the film is philosophical enlightenment, and the action is almost uh, collapses into the background as she as she reaches her pinnacle. I think that one of the things that contributes to this middling critical response across the board is that a lot of people are like, "Oh, not this thing about you only use ten percent of your brain again." Uh, we are far too clever for that, because of course it's nonsense. Uh, but Luke Besson in an interview this week said, yeah, I know it's nonsense. Yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's a B movie. And he said, it is true that we only use about 14% of our neurons at the same time. So if you could sort of overclock yourself so that you could use more of your brain at once to do something useful, what would happen then? But of course that's, to explain well, that in the middle of a movie is, you know. Well, it's as as he says. Look, I know it's not true. He says it's a metaphor. It's it's a mechanic for getting across his point. I mean, yeah. what happened if you used a hundred percent of your brain at one time? You'd be on the floor having an epileptic fit. I imagine is what would be happening. Uh, you know, the, the brain works the way it does because it is efficiency already. You, you don't become more efficient by employing more energy in your brain. But, you know, it's, as you say, it's, it's, it's your brain and using more and more of your brain. It's a case of it. She becomes more in tune. She becomes more and more aware. She becomes hyper aware. Yes. So it's, it's, it's a process of her going through this metamorphosis and, and transformation as she, as she literally becomes one with her own cells of her body. Yes. Yes. She, it's no longer just biological function. It, it is biological direction. Our, um, our journey sort of, well, this is the nice thing. Our journey has not come to its end. Uh, I mean, it's come to the end of the known, what is known about, uh, well, this is like, I think uh, the number of bereavements we've had this year, it's like, oh, it's so sad. We won't see the, the, what this guy had to do in the future. No, Luc Besson, he's only a man in his fifties. We can comfortably look forward to another 20 years of Luc Besson. Yeah, exactly. And the fact that he's, he's so, done so much. Producing, I mean, I'm looking at the Europa Corp Peter entry now. There's a lot more to go through in there, but I'm not going to, you know, belabor the point right now. The point is that he's been involved in uh, a lot of action, a lot of genre entertainment over the last, you know, uh, 10 years and beyond. And I, you know, long may it continue. Uh, and one of the things that I wanted to do was, I mean, we did Patrick Swayze. When we got to the end of Patrick Swayze, it was like, well, that is really the end. There, all the all the Patrick Swayze films that exist, that could exist, do exist, and we've just looked at all of them. Well, we've looked at all the current output of Luke Besson. God, that took a long time. But there's, yeah, like you say, there's more to come. I mean, if this is what he's done 
but you know, comfortably in between sort of 1997 and the present day, a span of, you know, 15-ish years, just over. Uh, as you say, if there's another 20 years of this guy, what is he going to be doing? I mean, you know, the mind literally is in danger of exploding in a Scarlett Johansson-like sort of... Uh, the concept of all the things that he still has it in him to keep doing, and, and, and I'm, I'm very happy about that. Apparently many other people, not so much, according to Rotten Tomatoes. But hey, Yes, well, you know, uh, say it's... It's nice to be able to go, we didn't appreciate the guy when he was here. No, he's here now, and we appreciate him. Yes, yes. his films are, most of the, most of all, fundamentally silly for the most point. He will take gangsters of various colours and varieties and give them oozes and, you know, rocket launches and have them be overtly evil all over the place to the point where some people say perhaps you're stereotyping our culture, Mr. Besson. But you know what? It's, it's just fun. It's fun. And, and when he puts thought into something, he has put genuine thought and care into something. I think there is also a strand to his work where, uh, yes, I mean, there's also, I mean, you know, he's done so much, it's impossible to pigeonhole one thing. You know, he's doing things like The Lady with Michelle Yeoh, where he's he's trying to, do, you know, present a historical thing. I mean, this is one of the things, Luke Besson, uh, whatever else you might say about him, is staggeringly pro-women pro women work i mean this is the thing he's he's a bit of an underdog fighter he starts europa corp to get work for film crews in europe who don't usually get work because uh, people don't film there and don't know the crews and so he's trying to get them involved in the global film industry which i think is fantastic and he's like I am tired of the number of male action heroes with big muscles and rocket launchers. And, you know, he, he, you know, if there's an opposite end of the spectrum to the expendables, which is like the retirement home for all those people to go to, <laughs> to keep, which is ironically got Jason Statham in it, weirdly. I think he's like the day nurse or something. But yeah, the other end of the spectrum, you've got this guy trying to put out, you know, things about women who are not presented uh, primarily in as you know in relation to a man first of all but also not necessarily doing things which have to do with whether or not they're going to get raped or whatever which is a lot of what the rest of entertainment is doing yes. you know and and that is laudable and it has to be said that sometimes in his philosophical moments, such as the end of uh, the Fifth Element and and whatnot, and Boy uh, get ready for Lucy. Yeah, it gets a bit flaky. But hey, you know, I mean, he's covered that whole spectrum. I mean, you know, if we're going to criticise filmmakers for having f flaky kind of new age spiritual beliefs, then well, George Lucas um, and yeah. so on and so forth. Do you know what I mean? And 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 indeed, uh, James Cameron. Uh, the point is that. Luke Besson's just trying to output, as far as I could tell, just as much stuff as is possible, and he's trying to be involved. And if anyone's going to get to the other end of this great life that we are given, these great opportunities that we are given, and just look back and just go, well, I don't waste my time. I mean, really? Seriously? Well, I think he was going to have any... He's, he's probably going to think, wish I spent some more time with the kids, but my God, I was just having so much fun at work. Yeah, it's just mental. So yeah, uh, Luke Besson, uh, we salute you, and and I, I, I 
heartily looking forward to seeing this film that you have already seen because Ian at the moment all you have to look forward to apart from catching up with all those things that you've missed is uh, Taken 3 that's the next thing that's coming up that is completely an unknown quantity but there will be more I'm sure Taxi 5 for example that's bound to happen surely (laughs) well if only there was somewhere else on the internet we could go to discuss these things Yes, I mean, if you want to uh, take us to task for not uh, having seen Angel A or uh, The Lady or any of those other films of his that I've not really seen, uh, but you are a big fan of all of those, I say, I'm not really into his action stuff, I just like all the other stuff and the French language stuff. If you want to come and tell us all about that, where would you go to do that? Well, I'm, I'm very glad you asked me that question, Leo. If you're the sort of person who thinks perhaps that Luc Besson really isn't your kind of director, the place you can go to bitch about this episode would be the fa- our Facebook page, which you can find on Facebook forward slash Revenge of the 80s Kids. And that's 80s as in numbers, so 80s. Uh, please go there and like our page. It is our community hub. We put up links to a podcast there, as well as links we find interesting. But uh, podcasts are what it's all about. And for those who want to point your web browser towards 80s kids, and that's 80s as in letters, so E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S kids dot podomatic dot com, uh, please go there and subscribe to our podcast using the podcast aggregates of your choice or download to your PC for dark reasons of your own. But this is uh, not where 100% of our uh, the can be found. Oh, no, we can be found in other fractions of the Internet. For instance, Leo can be found on... Uh, LeoStableford.com, where you can find the archive of our shows, as well as some other stuff. Uh, less other stuff, uh, just directly recently. Uh, but uh, I'm sure there will be more coming soon to that uh, place. Uh, also, uh, if you do want to see Justin, who isn't able to join us uh, right at this moment, but uh, it's probably because he's drawing something, and if you want to see the kinds of things which he could be found drawing, then you would go to his deviant art uh, under the name, of course, Justin Wyatt. So, yes, uh, well, I know that after all of that, I'm particularly in the mood to run off and uh, watch... Uh, a bunch of Luke Besson stuff. Um, also, Ian, I, there was this guy, he was uh, talking to me earlier about needing some help with a giraffe. Uh, I don't know if you're up for helping hmm. out with that. Apparently yeah, why not? We'll, we'll go rustle up Justin on the way. I'm sure it'll be to his benefit. And, uh, yeah, we'll go have a fun time. Yeah, I'm sure that nothing could uh, possibly go wrong whatsoever. So to everyone else, bye-bye. Farewell. Or bonjour. Bonsoir. Yeah. Au revoir, mon mon ami. Hello, Colonel Ivanov? Yes, uh, terribly sorry, we got cut off. We went into a tunnel, and it took us 20 minutes to come out the other side. What are we talking about again? Oh yes, your son! Will, look on the bright side, he'll have an eye patch too now. In the family albums, you'll look like each other even more. Just remember to take the photographs kind of from the shoulder upwards. 
Look, if you're just going to shout at me in Russian, there's no point us having this conversation, is there? I was only ringing to tell you we're going to be a wee bit late. What, with the giraffe pulling the van? Our top speed is currently a canter, isn't it? it oh. Oh, one moment. Leo, guess what? I had the handbrake on the whole time. Give her a bit of a giddy-up. See if she'll go faster. Yes, uh, so, a uh, wee bit delayed. Is that alright with you? You're going to personally do what to me? Well, sir, first you'll have to catch us. Oh, that's you in the helicopter, isn't it? Oh. Oh, it stopped beeping. Huh. I guess that means your son's in a stable condition, and all will be well. <laughs>